Hello, you wonderful people, and welcome to episode number five of the Being Sapient podcast. I can't believe it's been five episodes so far, coming up to four, four or five weeks since I launched this now, and yeah, I'm learning more and more as the weeks go by, and it's been a really, really incredible experience. So thank you to everyone that's, that's listened in so far. My uh, next guest is an absolute blinder. Not only is she a qualified yoga teacher, She's also an ambassador for Tag Heuer. She's also an ambassador for Roxy and a fellow Bear Bells ambassador, which is where I uh, really got to know her. But most of all, she is a two-time Winter Olympian. She is one of the people that was responsible for putting slope-style snowboarding onto the map when it came to the Olympics. Uh, and she has one incredible story. Her name is Amy Fuller. This is a conversation where we delve deep into the sort of the mindset of an Olympian and how she sort of maneuvered her way through her life and through her career to get to where she is today um i did a lot of listening on this one just because there was a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge to really take in from amy and how she applies herself and how she applies her mindset um so yeah without further ado let's get cracking on to episode number five <music> Hello, hello, and welcome to episode number five of the Being Sapien podcast. As you know, you've heard it in the uh, introduction. We're joined by a very, very special guest today, Miss Amy Fuller. And you know exactly who she is because I've just introduced her to you. So, um, yeah, this is uh, this is Amy Fuller herself. How are you? Good? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on, Lee. I'm, I'm excited to delve a bit deeper and have a good natter with you. Yeah, me too, me too. When you uh, yeah, when you said you could jump on, I was actually buzzing, you know. Um, not only are you an Olympian, you're also one of the coolest people that I probably know, you know. You can do anything, you you name it, snowboarding, windsurfing, like wakeboarding, you've got you've got it all. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. That's that's very, very kind. <laughs> I, I'd say it's uh a, a master <laughs> what's what's that phrase? Is it a master of one and something uh, i don't know i i, I like all trades master of none yeah yeah i like to i like yeah, to have a dabble um good, but good. W with my snowboarding at least i focus my energy very heavily on that uh for a good 13 years um and then since then i've had a good dabble with some other sports which i love good. well i'm I'm sure we'll get into it. I'm sure we'll, sure we'll open up. Um, so for those guys that are tuning in and that are listening, um, the overarching topic of all these conversations is all about mindset, all about performance and all about personal growth. Um, so we're going to have a little bit of a chat with Amy, um, go through her life and sort of uncover, I suppose, adversities and hardships that she's run into across her life that she's overcome and has got her to where she is now. You know, the, you don't become a um, two-time winter Olympian by being average, that's for sure. You've definitely gone through some in your life. Um, so before we get cracking, we need to, the people need to know who you are, where you come from, what you do, and uh, yeah, fire away. Okay, I am Amy Fuller. I'm originally from Keston in Kent. Uh, I've spent uh, three and a half years of my life living in the USA, Washington, DC. Uh, moved there at the age of 12, which is where my passion for snowboarding started. I then moved to Northern Ireland at the age of 16. Uh, lived here kind of for sort of for 13 and a half years, went to school 
here for two years, did A-levels, I say school, sort of went to school, um, as, as that's really, really when my snowboarding kicked off. And uh, now I reside in London, but when Corona isn't a thing, pop back to Northern Ireland as much as possible. Amazing. And uh, with the sort of, I mean, you've, you've been around a bit, that's for sure. But um, when did you, when did you realize, or, I mean, obviously snowboarding being your, your main gig and that's what probably a lot of people know you for as being a, a, a professional snowboarder. When did that sort of come into fruition? When did you realize actually, do you know what, this snowboarding thing is not just a hobby. It's something that like, this is going to be, this is going to be big for me. Yeah. So actually it's quite interesting because sort of joke there about, the start jack of all trades um as a kid growing up i used to race motocross um from the age of six to eight quite competitively i was on the quad bike at the age of four in the back garden um, you are skied, a thrill seeker <laughs> on dry slope romney dry ski slope at the age of four and uh skiing almost it was like a bit boring and i remember seeing a guy go from the top of the slope i was literally four uh from the top of the slope to the bottom of the slope and aired over a roller I was like, that is cool. That is what I want to do. And um, I was too small, so I didn't get to try it. So when I moved to the US, um, sort of the combination of doing gymnastics from the ages of 10 to 12, and then motocross for a few years, if you combine the two, when I moved to the States, it was just the perfect combination. Motocross, reading lines and transitions in a track, and then gymnastics, mm. the element of air awareness and you put the two together and um snowboarding came quite naturally to me quite quickly and I was um every opportunity I had I was seeking lines and adventure on my board which is what it's all about snowboarding essentially is a blank canvas um for you to create which is yeah. what makes it very attractive and there's no set rules it really is a sport where you write your own progression so it's like one week you go and you maybe think okay I'm going to ollie which means jump you know just over that little nodule or off the piste and then you go back the next week and you're like I wonder if I could do that times two so then you've done a meter mm. and before you know it you look back and you're like whoa I'm doing three meters now so I got hooked literally from the age of 12 and I was living out there for three and a half years. And I remember it was out there. And at the time I was playing lacrosse at school. Uh, that's really big in the States. I was playing point guard in basketball with the boys. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was still riding motocross, but trail. Um, I was having a little go at wakeboarding. But snowboarding really was something I was like, that's the one I like. Like I was just hooked. I like just dreamt about it. And my dad said, he's like, my dad's like the most chill guy. He was just like, why don't you just like pick one of them and just see if you could get really good at it. And it like literally, it was like a switch in the back of my brain. Mm. And I was like, snowboarding is what I want to do. So I was 16 and we were moving back to the UK and I just thought there is no way I'm going to be able to do this anymore. Like I'm, I was gutted. I've gutted to leave America purely for the fact mm. snowboarding just wasn't an option. Like moving to Northern Ireland, having never been there before um, to go to a grammar school um, and just go and do school. And that was it. I know it seemed yeah. like a real, like, damn. Just I normal agree. life, you know, like you, you've yeah. had this <laughs> 
you had you had you had, you, you had this like thing you were holding on to as a kid and it was something that you straight away was like okay like this is something i want to do and all of a sudden you're like hold on a minute like i'm going to northern Ireland. i don't know if there's much snow in northern ireland probably yeah. not a few there's not probably at that time as well there probably wasn't dry slopes might not have been a thing i don't really uh, know too much there was dry slope um, but there was only only one and it was like the dream was over but what was so surreal so moving here 16 2007 august i remember submitting on so i applied for a few schools over here um was looking in particular to do p gcse no a level and um i wrote on the form for sullivan upper school it was like what do you want to be when you're older and i put a pro snowboarder as a joke so i got an interview to it's, it's one of the best schools in the country um to go and meet the headmaster to to get into the school and he was purely intrigued he was like i saw your um you know your application form and I just had to meet you. I was intrigued. What's this all about? And I was like, yeah, I want to be a pro snowboarder. Ended up getting in there. No joke. Went to school for a week. First week at school, I rocked up in like bright pink Nike high tops, no tie, uh, like proper American. I'd been Americanized in those three and a half years. Everyone was like, <laughs> who the hell is this chick? I just rocked That's in, didn't so really cool. care what anyone thought. And I finished school, like it must've been on the Thursday of the first week and came back and my mom was like, Amy, there's someone on the phone. And I was like, oh yeah. And um, it was the Roxy European team manager. And I'd been noticed in the US, my details had been passed on. And she literally, that, that day changed my life. It was September and she was like, do you want to come to the Roxy European future camp on the 10th of October? And uh, I will never forget that day. And it was pretty much like, wow, this is my opportunity. It's here on a plate yeah. to go and get it. I mean, it wasn't on a plate, but the opportunity, I could see it. Whereas before I'd, I'd never seen that that lifestyle was even possible. I even look back now, you know, having competed in the Olympics in 2018, it's three years ago. And I'm like, how did, how did that even happen? Like, it's mad. Yeah. The whole the whole journey is is crazy. Yeah, that's amazing. That actually gave me shivers when you said you got a phone call and that was that on the on the on the end of yeah. the phone, right? Because that's something. I mean, I'm not going to say like you were giving it on the plate. You wasn't. You obviously like you you put the work in and you yeah. you you obviously had an incredibly large burning desire to want to do this in your life. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that like you know the the stars have aligned and and someone has. Well, what's really and... interesting though is so I went on that camp. I remember it vividly. Um, myself and one other girl, um, Celia Norandel, she recently just retired as well. Uh, she was on that camp too, and there are about ten of us. But out of those ten, only two of us made it to the last two Olympics. So what was really interesting was like you know, like this is the future of snowboarding if they put the work in. Um, so we, we learned a lot on that camp. I, you know, I got my first free jacket and um, I've been with Roxy ever since. I've 13 year career as a professional snowboarder, finishing school two years later, um, going full time on the GB snowboarding team. Um, and like not, not look back since really, it's, um, it's, it is, it's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's that's nuts. That's I mean, that's also an incredible, incredible achievement. Um, you got that phone call. 
what then went through your mind whilst over the next following like three, six, 12 months, was there like a, an, a way you applied yourself or like a thought process that went through your head where you were like, Do you know what, like this is my chance to, to show not only I mean GB, but the world of what I'm about. Cause you know, ever, I suppose everyone's dream as a sportsman is to go to the Olympics and you've made it happen twice. Um, how did you apply yourself mentally to get, so, get to get there? I think, um, what was great at the start was uh, my lack of experience. Um, ignorance is bliss, is what they say, and it's definitely very true. Living in Northern Ireland, obviously had very little opportunity to be on snow. And, um, you know, living in the US, we were on the East Coast. We lived an hour and a half away from the mountains. So I went literally every now and again. Um, so I went into the first contest of the season, having never competed in an international event in December so I did that one week in October and it was like December the 10th I flew out and um I entered the six star TTR and it was actually sponsored by Roxy the Roxy chicken jam and it was crazy I was surrounded by my idols people I'd seen on the tv at the x games Tora Bright she was suddenly a teammate Shirsty Buas Jenny Jones who then became a GB teammate um and I remember just thinking, oh, cool, this is great. This is where I want to be. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. And at that point, there was no fear in the slightest. It was just like, I'm going to just yeah. do the best I can do. And I remember like rocking up and just landing a run and got in the finals of like a six star, which is the highest tier event in the world against the best international risers. Um, it was just like insane. Uh, I think I ended up finishing like ninth or something in the finals yeah in one of the biggest events of the year and I'd had no practice but I didn't know what practice was because I hadn't done it I had no experience so um definitely the first year it was a massive case of just like you know it was a very very steep learning curve and to be honest that learning curve mm. continued because I was the girl in the field that had the least amount of board time um mm. which then just obviously meant I had to put in a hell of a lot of work um, when I did finish school. And I didn't want to just sort of be a part of the field and be a top 10 rider. So I call it the glory years, but it was in 2012 and I, I worked my backside off um, like, I think it was 2010, 2011. And I signed with Red Bull after um, doing a double in New Zealand, one of the first girls in the world to do a double. So I was all about progression and pushing mm. progression. That was kind of my vibe. I like the excitement of doing something new. Um, and, and What does a double buzz, mean, Amy? Uh, just it, at the time it was a double backflip, but, but no females had, had really done that. So in 2012, my focus was to sort of put that into competition because I was doing it in training quite consistently um mm. relatively easily and um that year was just the start of that year was rocking I won the first contest of the season everything was kind of going my way um and it was then that they announced um the Olympics was going to be um in slope style which is what I do so they'd never had a slope style Olympics before so I was a part of the first team going to Sochi 2014 for slope style snowboarding um, but yeah, I say that is amazing. like that, like it was easy. It definitely <laughs> wasn't easy. The... And that's where the, sh the hardships and, and real life lessons 
came in because before that snowboarding to me was just a lot of fun. I was getting paid to live my dream. I was competing at international events on the world stage. I was being successful. I was competing in the X games, which at the time was the biggest event in our sport. Mm -hmm. And um, suddenly we were dangled the Olympic carrot and uh, things kind of, yeah, hit, hit the ground a little bit for me then. What's a typical training day or triple training week in the life of a snowboarder? Uh, so instantly in my head, I'm in Austria. Um, it's pre-season. We spend a lot of time training pre-season. So that's sort of October, November time on the glaciers. So super early start, um, 30 minutes of yoga, uh, good brekkie, straight up the hill. Uh, you're riding by 8.30. It's always a, it's a bit of a trek to get up the hill normally. Uh, so that's kind of your compression downtime where you can plug in some tunes, visualize a little bit. Um, and then I was a real morning person. I really enjoyed getting um, like early bird gets the worm, you know, like good snow conditions, less people. Yeah. So I'd always like hammer out a really strong three hours. And then when it got busy, I'd either have a little break um, and then I'd hike, hike a feature. So you know, like a rail or a jump, you would then sort of spend some time specifically on that and you literally just hike it until you kind of achieve what you want, what you to, want achieve to achieve on that day. Yeah. And then depending on sort of like in general, how the week's been, the weather, you'd either come down the hill. If you know the weather's, a lot of it's based around the weather. If you know the weather's bad the next day, you'd smash yourself in the gym. So you've got a day to recover. Um, when I say smash yourself in the gym, uh, a lot of leg, uh, single leg, um, you know, big lifting, as well as a lot of plyometrics. Um, if the weather looked good, we'd probably go to a trampoline park and work on air awareness and tricks that we wanted to take to snow the next day. Um, yeah. So it's a real case of um, being able to be mentally agile with your week. Um, there's nothing set in stone with snowboarding. Conditions change. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very exposed, you're in the elements. So you've, you've really got to be ready to like change direction at any time, e even change mountains. You know, if the snow is bad, you've, you've got to be ready to pack up and move on and go somewhere else. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's very controlled by the elements. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a very go, 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 um, environment. It seems like, you know, there's never like, it's not like, it's not like as a runner, you're just you know, training for that one, mm. obviously running, you're, you're training in gait and you're just doing that one specific skill or that one specific yeah. movement. Whereas snowboarding is, there seems like there's so much to it and there's so much more that you've got to be aware about whilst obviously not only are you just like going at speed, but you might be going at speed attempting a trick or going at speed and attempting, yeah. you know, different, different maneuvers. Right. So there's, there's seems so, so much to it and fitting all that training in and then worrying about everything else on the side of it. There's a, it seems like there's a lot that goes into preseason. Yeah. I think um, there's, um, there's just so much that goes into being a snowboarder. Like I look back and I call it the, the degree of life. I didn't go to university. I, I signed up to Bath and uh, still joke about this today. Cause I went for two days and managed to, past the first semester without actually going um but I was so focused on my snowboarding it was like this this is my degree and I almost call the Olympics you know that that was my that was my time that was me applying myself to something you know yeah so uh, 
you know the 2014 Olympics has been announced. Um, it's the first, as you said, it's the first sort of time they've done they've done your event and your sport in the Olympics. Um, what was it like training for the Olympics? Did you experience any hardships? Any sort of anything you had to really overcome, not only physically but mentally? How did you apply yourself, knowing that like this is the first time I'm going to be Olymp- in the Olympics? Not only is it the first time you're going to the Olympics, it's the first time your sport's being represented in Olympics. So how does that? How do you feel? How did you feel about that as a as a yeah. it's a pretty big thing to take on, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll be super honest. I think. Initially, there was this fear of pressure and it was, I almost didn't want to commit too much to the Olympics in case it didn't go my way. Um, Mm. So it was like, oh, cool, great. It's an Olympic sport, fantastic. But I don't think I really truly understood the meaning of what it meant to go to the Olympics for your country until I got there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was a real shock. But I went from having this very relaxed approach, like it is what it is. Um, You know, I was riding well, I'm riding well, I'll just get there. You know, like it's a given, I'll just Mm. end up there. And um, it it couldn't have been further from it. Um, So the qualifying started, it sort of starts 18 months before. And it started right, right in that period where I was like, having my time in snowboarding so I was like okay cool it's just another thing I've got to apply myself to that will be fine didn't really think too much about it um but it's all sort of went pear shape um about 13 months out from the games when I was attempting to do the world's first in Juto which is one of the biggest American contests outside of the X Games and it was December uh, 2012 and I ripped a double, landed on my shoulder. I ended up doing two and a half and like ruptured my AC joint in my shoulder. Ooh. So that that was a real bummer, which then meant I went into the first qualifying event really unstable on my feet and very, very unconfident. It was two weeks later, so I was in a lot of pain and I just sort of rode through the course. It was the first time I'd been in an event where I had to do it to get points. So everything changed very quickly. Um, I then rocked up to the next event after Christmas. So January, 2013. So the games is like, wow, we're almost a year away. And I got there and I looked at it and I listened to my gut and deep down, I was just like, I'm not ready to ride this. The jumps were huge. It was icy. It was windy. We were in Quebec, Canada. And I was like, for the first time in my life, I am scared. I'm really, really scared. So I literally spent a day Mm. sort of riding next to the course and turned my back on it and said to the coach at the time, I was like, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the States to train. I'm not comfortable on my feet. I'm just going to go. So I just took myself off went back to the States, ended up training for a week on my own with um, one of the top Canadian skiers at the time. Um, And we just both got our heads down and kind of grinded it out. And I came out of that feeling a lot better for it and a lot more confident on my board. Um, And then things continued to not go in my favor. The test event in Russia was canceled. Um, We had an event in Spain and the weather was really bad. They only gave us one run. We normally get two runs. 
Um, the good news that season was I re refocused and recentered my energy and I was the first woman in the world to land a double in the X Games. So that was the high. That was the one positive Incredible. moment to take from that season, but it didn't contribute to yeah. uh, qualifying for the do Olympics. You, do you allow those? So you would you say you're someone yourself that allows like small wins like that, like you being the first person to land the double in the X Games? Yeah. Do you allow that small win to really contribute to the overarching yeah. um Definitely. positive mindset that you have you know you've had all these setbacks you've had to turn your back on something that can be like a huge blow for you and it might potentially be like the difference between you qualifying for the olympics isn't or not yeah. so that, that, that's, a, that's a huge sort of you know adversity you've had to overcome and then you've obviously then got, gone to the x games and you've landed a double do you allow that to feed your energy and like oh feed definitely your... i'm a big believer in like and even you know through through this experience um you learn so much and it's about taking the positive moments and there's a positive in every negative so um when i look back on this whole you know mess of a qualifying experience i'm like i'm a lot better person for it so mm. i took that little win in team that was march 2013 and you know all the other events i sort of crumbled or they'd crumbled around me essentially uh, so I had three more events uh, before the Olympics. So one was in New Zealand. Um, again, I was training in Canada in the July, a month before it. And I did my uh, AC joint in my left shoulder, grade two. So it was like rotator cuff on the right and AC joint on the left. Um, mm -hmm. I flew all the way to Whistler. I think it was July and I did it on the third run. So that's how... Um, sort of aggressive and quickly our sport can change so sort of two like minor but major injuries that you know they you know takes a good month at least to heal so turned up in New Zealand for the third to last qualifying event not really stable on my feet I hadn't had any ride time um, I was nervous and I knew that this event you know was one that could depict how I would you know my future in the sport and again, I just crumbled under the pressure, um, which was just bizarre. Like I'd never experienced this mm. in snowboarding. My, my career up to this point was very, 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 very smooth sailing, but it was suddenly like this, this looming thing in the distance that I was sort of working towards, but I knew deep down I hadn't committed to it because I was yeah. scared of not achieving the goal publicly because it's quite a public thing. Yeah. Um, but what was really interesting, and, and this is where it gets good, and this is this is where I've learned so much from it. So I've got two events to qualify, and they are December and January. So you go to the Games in February. So they're very close together. Yeah. October 2013, it was the Olympic press day, and I had been, um, you know, in the public eye. I was rising very well before that year. So everyone was expecting me to be a part of this new slope style snowboarding team. But what they didn't know was how bad my season had been. So I said to my mom, I was like, I don't think I'm going to go to the press day. I just, I just, you know, I'm, I've not qualified. So why would I go? And my mom was like, you're going unless someone tells you otherwise in reference to the Olympics. And I was like, you're right. I am. And it That's was what mums are for. It was, it, it was literally that. And I went to the press day. 
I held my head high. I stood proud. I spoke well. And I said, look, I've got a, I've got a bit of a way to go yet to really solidify my place in the team. But I'll be there and I look forward to representing our country and putting snowboarding slope style on the map in the UK because, you know, it's a really special sport and I want other people to see what we get to do. So I suddenly had this fire, like it, it, it was crazy. I'd gone from being That's this like chilled out, laid out kind of snowboarder, like it is what it is. I'll, you know, I'll just, it'll be fine. Like I'll just rock up and do my thing to yeah. it is game time. It is game time. So it's December, uh, just before Christmas, I'm in Copper Mountain, Colorado. There is a field of 70 girls and they are hungry. There's 24 Olympic spaces and there are 70 girls fighting for spaces to go to the first ever Olympics. Yeah. So my coach at the time had worked out I needed two particular results. So the first one had to be top 12 or better. And the second one had to be top six or better. Bearing in mind that the season before had been an absolute shocker. And I don't think I'd got better than 18th. So dropped in and I was just, I was like an animal. I was just like, this is mine. Like the mindset was like, I love it. I was like, I'm not falling over. Like, cause that's what happens in snowboarding. It's very easy to just kind of fall off, fall off your feet or slide out. Like it's, it's very affected by the conditions. And I was just like, I am not going down. Like you cannot even push me down. I will fight. Like, you you know, like in, uh, when you squat, it's like, ask the grass. You are, like, yeah, you're, you like, are going my, up no matter what. I was like, my <laughs> ass can touch, touch the snow, but it won't because I will find a way to stand up. <laughs> and it was like Love it. the worst conditions ever. It was just so horrific. And I was like, you lot are all struggling. I am going to revel in this and I'm going to own it. And um, I managed to land a run. It wasn't my best, but I finished in 11th. So that was like box tick number one. And then the second event was like three weeks later, post Christmas, I stayed in Canada. So I was on the same time zone. Um, And I arrived in Quebec. And what was interesting about Quebec, Quebec is the event where I stood at the top the year before and was like, I'm not doing this. I'm scared. Whereas I had no, I had no option to not be scared. That's it was so like, powerful. It was like this, this is my time or, or I've lost my dream. Everything I've, you know, worked so hard for, like it's gone, it's gone in a run, like you fall and you are done. Like, and what was interesting about that whole period of time was how my mindset had changed in even my preparation. Like, at night I was going out and doing these long walks, putting Mm. my headphones in, I was visualizing, like it was visual. Like I could, the sort of the senses that I was going through, the sounds and the sights in all of my Mm. visualizations were so, so vivid. I had each move like kind of linked in almost to sound. It was like, like tick tac tock, bosh, like each trick. So it's, you know, it's like a rhythmic routine that you put together. So I was standing at the top in Quebec, again, really bad conditions, like minus 30, windy, blizzard. And I remember one of the Norwegian guys, the Norwegians are, are really good snowboarders, Torrega. I was like, hey, Torrega, can I follow you to get the speed? Um, he was like, sure, sure, sure. And I kind of stuck to him like glue for that whole event. And um, was just watching him ride and following his speed. And 
got my run dialed pretty quickly and it was qualification day. So you've got qualies, semis, finals. So they've got a sift, yeah. a field of like 45 to really finalize the last Olympic places. I'm still at the top. I need top six or better. I've got qualifying, first 12 go through. And I dropped in on my first run and I fell over. And I was like, Amy, you, you, no. could, you, you could have just given it away. You get two runs, best run counts. But, you know, ideally you want to land your first run so you can better better the second one. And it was like, wow, it is this close. It's now make me. or break. It's, it's this close it's to being break, taken yeah. away from me because it's only the qualifying. It's like, if you don't pull through this, it's pretty much career over in my head. And um, I remember going to the top and Tora Bright, who's an Australian Roxy snowboarder. She's an Olympic gold medalist. She's a really good friend of mine now. Someone I looked up to when I was like 12. She's five years older than me. And I remember her saying, just like, Fuller, just vibe with it. Just come on, let's do a dance. And it was like, okay, let's take a layer of pressure off. It is just snowboarding. Mm. You can do this. And we sort of had this little dance at the top. We were vibing. I dropped in just with authority. And it was like, I've got this. And I just remember like completing that run and the relief. I think I qualified through to the semis in like fifth. Um, and it was, thank God. And I remember just messaging my mom like, cool, I'm through to the next round. And she's like, okay, well, what does that mean? And she's like, I was like, ah, uh, well, I still need to get like, you know, into the top six because I'm still in, in the top 12 now. We've got to do the semi. Yeah. She's like, oh God. And I was like, yeah, I know. And I had like a two day wait. And I remember just sitting in the hotel room in Quebec, like staring out the window, just being like, I've never wanted anything more. And for it to be so mm. close, but also so close to be taken away from you. It was like dangled on a, you know, like dangling a carrot in front of a rabbit. And um, I just went up there. I was the first one up there on the on the semi-finals day. I was like on point. I was riding aggressive. I was fast. I was strong. I was just like an animal. And and that whole week, I didn't let anyone distract me. Like you, you know, you've got a huge field of riders. You've got like hundred boys, I think forty-five girls, and you know everyone's there like chatting. And there's lots of distractions in that environment. And I was just like for the first time, because I'm, I'm quite an open person, but for the first time I was like, I am not letting any of this noise consume me. Yeah. This- All of that subconscious stress that would typically be there. If you're putting that stress on yourself, you're closing off to that and you're sort of like tunnel vision on your sort of like, oh, totally. head, right? And I think I never really experienced pressure like it. You know, when you're, you're given an opportunity and you're so close to achieving it, but it's not yours and you, you, there's nothing else you want more um it, it was crazy I, I i still can't say to this day i've felt pressure like that and i went up dropped in i remember this specific like breathing technique that i used and it was nothing it was so basic but to me that was my way of controlling the controllable and i like opened the window closed my eyes did 
three big deep breaths. And if I could visualize my whole run within that, within those three breaths and land it, I knew it would be okay. Slept in my contest bib, plugged in this tune, went up, dropped in, smashed it out. So got through to the finals, was in the top six. And it was very like, it didn't matter. It was like, if Brooke from Canada lands and Charlotte from Holland lands, then you might need fourth. Like there were so many variables. Yeah. And um, I landed, finished fifth, um, called my mom and was just, we'll never forget going, I've done it. She's like, what have you done? I was like, I've done it, I'm going. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and I've never looked back since. And um, that that pressure, you know, having to essentially qualify for the Olympics in, in two events, I've never, ever well pressure makes diamonds right at the end of the day yeah. you've this is the first time in your life i mean it's obviously so so clear um just listening to the way you speak that how how passionate you are about this sport and it's something that totally took over your life and, and it literally is, is at, at any moment throughout that whole experience it could have been, been taken away it, it, it could have been taken away from you in, in, in a second right you if you fell at any point on that second run or fell at any at any point in any of those qualifying events that needed you needed to land that place game over and as you said for you that was like career over because it's very very hard to come back from something that's like it's that's that's such a big negative um i have no doubt that you probably uh, you have your fantastic sort of mindset and you probably would have bounced back from it and no doubt that you probably would have gone to 2018 anyway but like you know, like that for you was huge. And for the, to the fact that you like, you had two events and they were the last two events of the season to before the Olympics. And you went, you know what, this is me and I'm owning this. That just shows you what sort of mindset and what sort of head you've got on your shoulders, you know, and it's, it's, it's very powerful. What was crazy though, even like it was so soon, it was so close to the Olympics. I was on the plane to the Olympics two weeks later. Like I'd, there was no space to even like kind of realize that I'd done it, which was kind of mad. Um, and and sort of from that experience, um, I remember doing my motorbike test like, a couple of weeks after the Olympics, just because I wanted to do it. And I remember people saying like, oh, are you not nervous? I was like, are you joking? You don't know what nerves are. <laughs> <laughs> nervous. I was like, I could do this. I could do this test five times over. It doesn't matter. I don't care what anyone thinks. Like, it's not going to define or consume me. Whereas the Olympics, like you only really get one chance, you know, and you mess that up and it's game over. Whereas I think for me moving forward in life, it's taught me that um, there are so many things that we critique ourselves so harshly on. Yet sometimes there's really no need to punish ourselves for failure the way we do, you mm. know, it, it doesn't always matter and there's always an opportunity to try something again. So I think it's taught me to really know when to put the pressure on and to conform and to perform, uh, conform and perform um, versus something that's more leisurely where it doesn't actually matter. And yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like I've, I, I listened to a, a podcast recently, I can't remember which one was, maybe a Modern Wisdom one, and they were talking about failure and what it means, like what, what is failure? And for me, I've always seen failure as lessons, not failure. I don't think you can ever fail at something. I think you can learn lessons from things. Yeah. 
um, and you will always take, I mean, I, I, I personally think if you don't fail at something in life or whether that's personal or professional within your career, how are you going to learn? You know, you can't go through life and expect it to be like all singing, all dancing. There are going to be times where you're going to experience something that's going to knock you for six and maybe sit you down. But like, can you stand back up and say, Do you know what, like, wasn't my time then, but it's going to be my time now. Um, that for me is like how people should really sort of think about applying themselves to failure and not get so emotionally caught up on the fact that, okay, like it didn't work out for me this time, but I can assure you it will work out for me next time. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's definitely crazy, like looking into looking at my second Olympics and the process of what I learned from the first to the second and just how I was such more, I was so much more efficient in the way I went about it. I ended up mm. qualifying for the second one, third in the bigger at the end of the season and fifth in the slope style versus the, and I'd done it in the first season rather than the season right before it. Um, so I think, yeah, you can just learn so much from high pressure situations where you end up, yeah, I mean, like I was so close to failure. Yeah. Yeah. And you had to, you had to apply yourself at the highest level in yeah. order to achieve, achieve where you wanted to go, which is, yeah, it's incredibly powerful. Um, your snowboarding career, you then ticked off 2014, 2018 Olympics. Um, I'm not going to say it was then your time to like, it's not your time to hang up the boots. So you could, you're still very young and you still could have been, um, you know, going on for, for years to come. Um, but I know you have now retired from competitive snowboarding, right? Yeah. Um, how, how was, how was that? How did that make you feel? What was, what's the emotions that you're feeling at this point? Made me feel really good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, I don't have to throw myself off icy jumps when I don't want to anymore. <laughs> like competition life is tough. And I think I'm quite happy to be open and honest about it. Cause a lot of people, they're just like, I love snowboarding. <laughs> it's so, it's the best. You're like, yeah, it's the best when you're riding with your mates, enjoying snowboarding for the reason you started it. That is why I love snowboarding. That's 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 where my passion lies. And I was so lucky I was able to turn that into my career. But um, for me, it was, a, it was a real relief to hang up the boots and know that I've done everything I can in the sport to put it on the map. And just because I've finished competing, it doesn't mean that, I can't support the industry and the scene that's given yeah. so much to me. So um, I will always stay a fan of snowboarding. I will always snowboard. I will always be a snowboarder. But my time is done on those icy jumps. I've done my time on that. And, you know, now hopefully there's space for someone young and upcoming to fill that slot and for them to have their shot at being in the limelight and representing the country because I never, ever imagined or dreamed, you know, a girl from Kent <laughs> would end up, uh, competing in two Olympics like it's it's madness so looking back on it I'm just like I mean it's crazy how fast that time went but it was like you know 11 years of my life and I gave everything to it so now I can uh, sit back and enjoy what snowboarding the opportunities it's given me and and kind of see where I can I can take it like I still got in the mountains this year which was amazing and I feel so privileged to have done and it's it's nice to be there with um you know less pressure yeah for sure i think i mean i can't imagine because I've, I've never never competed at that sort of level but i can totally sort of understand where you're coming from where it's like yeah you're you're the, the pressure of having to represent your country is now done you're now doing it back you kind of like 
I feel like the way you're the way the way you're at now with it is like where you started with it, and you started because you had a passion for snowboarding. Yeah. You didn't see like necessarily a career; it just kind of happened for you, and you made it your career. And now you're back at that place where it's like your passion, and you just love to like do it because you love the sport, right? Um, yeah, totally. So and, you're, you're back in a happy place. There's two sides to snowboarding, you know. Like snowboarding isn't all about competition. There's there's backcountry, which is big mountain, and I've dabbled in that where you know you go out with a pack in Japan and you go and build jumps, and it's it's a totally different vibe. And I'd love to do more of that. Um, you know, if the if the support continues in that space, um, because I've got an amazing network of badass girl riders that we can go out with and do some really cool stuff and film. And um, so where the opportunity arises in that space, I will 100% be there doing that. But at the same time, I've, um, you know, I do have other passions now and, and, and there's more to me than going up and down the same slope, you know, like, yeah, for uh, sure. I've always had a sort of broader vision on life and I've got lots of different interests, <laughs> as you mentioned at yeah. the start. Uh, so it's sort of actually like scaling the snowboarding back and um, finding other things I'm interested in and exploring them. Yeah. It's like, who wants to do the same job for the whole of their life? Even yeah. it, be a, it, it be a very fun job. It's, it's nice to explore and, and dabble in other things. Exactly. Well, I want to talk about something now that um, I don't think I'll probably ever talk about someone ever again. You did a marathon in North Korea. I did. You're probably the only person that I know that will ever go to North Korea. I'm oh, firstly okay. intrigued how you got there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I want you to talk me through the whole experience and I want to understand key takeaways, key learnings, um, yeah, the difference between the difference. To, I mean, I, I saw, I, I watched your vlog about being in North Korea um, and the way an athlete is not necessarily treated but sort of like how how an athlete is seen in north korea and how an athlete is seen over here um i want i want the whole the whole picture yeah so basically um so snowboarding takes you to some good places <laughs> um i wouldn't say it was solely snowboarding but i was stood on the london marathon finished line in 2018 post olympics and i said to um the lady who runs Tag Heuer, I'd much rather be running this marathon than standing here drinking champagne. I don't think many people would say that, but that's what I said. She's like, you can have a place next year if you like. I was like, okay, could I do it with my mum? She was like, don't see why not. Rang my mum. Do you want to run the marathon next year, the London marathon? She's like, yeah, we have always talked about that, haven't we? Give me a few days. I'll have a think on it. And then three days later, she's like, I'm in if you're in. I was like, cool, but only if we do it together. So we're like, sweet, let's do it together. So started training in January 2019. And um, I was out running in Richmond Park um, with Davina. You might know Davina. Yeah. Used to teach spin. We all know Davina. Yeah. And um, I put up a little story on Instagram, which is going like training for London, got covered in mud totally lost um haha can't wait for a cup of tea something like that and literally like two minutes later I had Leah Hervey who used to work at Sky who I met at the Olympics in 2014 she'd moved to the Olympic channel and she said hey you don't fancy running another marathon do you I was like uh nah and she, she, she's like <laughs> hear me out hear me out she's like it's in North Korea for a documentary five minutes later I was on the phone to her and um I was like, yeah, I'm in. Sounds great. No joke. Six weeks later, 
having left all of my prized possessions, including my phone and laptop in Beijing, in a safe, in a vault, I was about to get on a two-star Koiro Air X Russian plane to fly into Pyong- Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, to run my first ever marathon and film oh a documentary in the process. It was wild. <laughs> I mean, what I think a wild is an understatement, Amy. That, that, is, uh, that is absolutely correct. I mean, you, but you had been training for this marathon prior or did this come up tra- and you had like six weeks to train for it? I was training for London. That's why they were like, oh, you're already training. Do you want to come and do another one? So but the I, North Korea one, how much earlier was North Korea to London? It was like two weeks before London. Okay. So, I mean, it, it was hilarious. Like, if you were to get into the performance element of it, like, it was it was just a joke. And again, a massive case of ignorance is bliss. Like, I've never done a marathon. And, you know, in North Korea, I was expecting they'd have stands with bananas and water. <laughs> they didn't. So, it was just like... <laughs> I just like started and I didn't really think anything of it. I was just like, cool. I mean, it can't really be that hard, right? It's just running. It's one foot in front of the other. So in terms of like the process, the mental element of what I went through, it was, I actually like in a really strange way enjoyed it because I really had to scale my thought process back and just strip Mm. it back to how grateful I was to be able to run and even though I was in pain it was still like you know I'm I'm in pain but yeah I'm so grateful that I can actually experience this because you know not everyone has the ability to run like it's it's a gift right so that whole mental process was like super intense because I didn't have any music because I didn't have my phone um, yeah. I had a burner phone because you, you can't take your phone there and it had like one podcast. You can't take your phone from outside the country into the country. No, no, no. In case it had any like propaganda or anything on there that would get you in trouble. Yeah. So I had a burner phone that which had nothing on it and I just had like one podcast because that's all I'd managed to download and it was literally like an Annie Mac playlist. It was like 12 minutes long. <laughs> I kept listening to it in one ear. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, that whole the whole process of the run was kind of like just a side add-on. It was like, there were so many distractions, you know, like with the experiences we were having in North Korea that the marathon was just like, oh yeah, whilst, whilst, whilst we're filming, yeah, if you could just run the marathon, we'll film you. I'm like, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry about it, guys. No problem. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that was, that was, that was crazy. But in terms of like North Korea itself, like it's everything that you see in the movies and more. Um, it's, uh, I, I remember landing there and getting in the car and looking out the window going, Oh my God, there's so many people walking. So if you imagine like Heathrow to South Ken sort of distance. So like yeah, 12 miles, half an hour. Yeah. In a car. Half an hour, 12 miles. Yeah. Yeah. About the 12 miles. Yeah. Yeah, but walking, that's like four, that's four hours. Yeah, four hours. hours. Yeah. <laughs> so that sort of distance, they were walking from the airport to, to Pyongyang. I was like, why is everyone walking? And the guy was like, uh, because cause we like to keep our air clean. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, there's really no cars on the road. Why is everyone walking? 
And then I found out later, they don't have cars there. Only like the diplomatic staff have cars. So everyone walks or they cycle. What, so so a, a resident a resident can't, can't buy a car? I don't think so, no. Like, it was like things like that where you're just like, whoa, they're walking miles and miles and miles. Like, it's so surreal. Oh um, were, we weren't allowed in any shops. I couldn't leave the hotel. I went for one run before the marathon i was there was that because you're a tourist or was that like in general uh, it's just like that they don't really run there i didn't see anyone running i i reckon i could have been one of the first people to what do you mean they don't run what they can't just walk out the door and have a little run they don't really run no i didn't see anyone running there so they organized it so i could go for a run and they followed me in a car up the road (laughs) so (laughs) obscene yeah i mean total contrast to something like over here right over here you can train to your heart's content and can and i yeah. suppose like prepare and and, and yeah, get ready so for something like this like, you know performance and preparation you know like for the london marathon there's so much hype and excitement oh it's the day before the marathon and you know everyone in london feels that marathon energy like the city changes yeah, there's an energy whereas and you kind of thrive on that, right? But whereas in North Korea, it was like, there was no like taper or there was no like, ooh, what are we going to eat the night before? It was like the hotel short-circuited. There was no power. And we were eating cold tofu the night before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was just like that whole experience. I actually like kind of weirdly enjoyed it because I didn't have have the time or the energy to worry about what was yeah, you or wasn't going to happen no it was just yeah. like it is what it is um and i suppose that kind of removed all pressure but the, the pressure was on in terms of you know i had to complete the marathon because you know we'd gone there to film a documentary about the marathon yeah i mean that is uh, that's so, I mean, to say the least, if you were if you were prepared and you could prepare like a like a like a normal person for a marathon, it's hard enough. But you know, in conditions like that, I mean, it totally throws you out of your comfort zone. And I mean, operating out of your comfort zone is probably something that you're usually quite um, content with. But was that was that any was that different? Did you have to apply yourself a little bit differently? Well, I think I'm so used to being in an extreme environment in terms of the elements and performance. Obviously, the environment of North Korea, some would say, is extreme. Yet, you know, the weather was good. It was sunny. And all I was doing was running. So even though it was painful and it was sore, the process of what I actually had to achieve was very simple. It's one foot in front of the other. And that was the way that I dealt with it was because my, you know, past experiences in my sport, you know, there's pain there's injury there's uh you know mental agility the event's on it's off it's cancelled um it's there's there's a lot of hurdles in my sport so to actually almost Mm. go and do something recreationally as in i was a recreational runner and i wasn't expected to be the best it really removed the pressure for me so i just kept scaling the process of what i actually had to achieve back so it's like okay you've got to run for 26.2 miles okay that's like right okay we've run to the bench and back okay i'm going to the bench and back again all right i'm going to the local <laughs> town and back 
all right, I've only got to go to the town and back once and then to the bench and back again. So sort of scaling <laughs> it down to make it more accessible whilst I was doing it was, was how I got through it. And then the process of sort of removing any, any negative thoughts from the center of your brain and just removing them. Like it was almost like a conveyor belt of thoughts because, you know, when you have to achieve something, you, you cannot like fester on any negative energy. Yeah. So it's yeah. A constant. Okay. Find the good vibes, pick the good stuff. Like, and, um, cause it was, it was very long. It was very straight roads. I was very underprepared. Um, but it kind of made it a bit more exciting. But you made it happen. And I mean, yeah, fair play to you for, uh, for navigating that. That's a pretty impressive feat. That's for sure. What's next for Amy Fuller? Ooh, Monday mile is the latest thing. Um, that's my audio visual podcast where we take people off their screens and outside into the elements to get a one mile walk under their belt. I think just in particular the last year and, um, you know, how much sort of more stationary, even myself, everyone has become, um, I wanted to do something a little bit different, um, that hopefully yeah. encourages people, um, or supports them to start the week strong so I'm, I'm really excited about that and looking forward to kind of growing that um i think sort of the main goal is olympics next year the winter olympics to be there in some capacity with a microphone in my hand for sure that's the goal uh that's the longer term goal um and then yeah who knows every day is different <laughs> Every day is different. There's always a new, there's always a new side hustle and always a new sort of passion project to get stuck stuck into. And yeah, I think I love that about you. You've always got, you've got that hustler mentality and you can, you can tell that from a mile off, you know, having known you for a fair few years now. Um, it's, I mean, I, 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 I had that straight away. I had that sort of connection with you where I knew, okay, this person's going to be doing something pretty cool because you've got that sort of aura about you. Um, which is, is pretty amazing and yeah the way you've applied yourself to get to where you are today is yeah nothing shy of of high performance I suppose and you, you've, you've operated at such a high level um what's your life motto oh um mine is try something new every day no matter how small it is that one thing will keep you coming back time and time again Amy Fuller, that has been absolutely fantastic conversation. I've loved that. Um, I've loved getting to know you a bit more and a bit more about your life. And uh, I hope the listeners at home can uh, take us a lot, lots and lots of nuggets of information and knowledge, I suppose, and try and apply that into their life because yeah, you, your mindset's next level and you've performed at the highest of levels when it comes to sport. Um, and I see yeah, nothing but good things from you. Oh, so, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, much, Lee. That was ace. Amazing. And that is the episode number five of the Being Sapien podcast. Over and out.